Okay, so for a uh, very quick bit of review, um, so far we have spent time discussing um, some basic principles of church discipline as we find in Matthew 18, in Galatians 6, and in 2 Thessalonians 3. Um, Matthew 18, you know, specifically addressed if your brother sins or if your brother sins against you. We talked a little bit about that and, and how you might look at that. Galatians 6.1, um, if um, someone is overtaken in a fault. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3, those of the disorderly or the idle. Um, specifically, I think he was addressing those that were refusing to work and what needed to be done there. But there's some basic principles that apply to all of these situations. Um, we see that there's a definite concern for salvation, or of salvation for the sinner. That sin is dealt with as privately as possible. Sometimes it may get to the point where it needs to be go beyond that, right? And the goal is restoration. The goal of church discipline is not punishment. The goal is restoration. And the fact that it's necessary to deal with each individual, each situation individually instead of some set in stone steps that every act of discipline needs to be followed these exact steps. Because we see various different steps based on various types of things that were being addressed in these various churches and letters and from Jesus himself. But the, there again, it's remembering this ultimate goal of restoration. And we also spent a class talking about fellowship and what is fellowship and what does fellowship really mean. But then on Sunday and then continuing tonight, we're going to finish the chapter and then get into the next, we were talking about the situation in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. And this was a case where a man was having um, sexual relationships with his father's wife. And the question was brought, well, the, the book kind of brought up the question, um, you know, would this be considered incest if the father is dead? And I want to clarify something or correct something that I said that I think I probably said incorrectly, all right? Um, I said I didn't know if it would, if the father was dead, if you could still classify it as incest, but what he was doing would have been wrong because it would have been fornication, right? Anyway. But the more I studied that, because I thought about that, and the more I studied that, um, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18. And the reason that I say I'm, I, I believe I misspoke, and I want to clarify that, is because in Leviticus 18, verses 7 and 8, we read this. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. And so it seems to be that in the old law, even a stepmother was considered a mother from, from the law standpoint. And if that's the case, I'm not sure that if the father died, if that consideration of God as still being a mother would 
no longer apply. I think it, I think it does, based on what I read in, in Leviticus. Because it's that same wording, the, you know, your father's wife. A man had his father's wife. We see that in, in um, 1 Corinthians. So um, I just wanted to correct that and um, make sure that I didn't give a false impression. I specifically did say it wasn't right what he was doing no matter what, but I think the technicality of it, it would still be considered, even though his father was dead, from a Levitical law standpoint, and I don't see any um, change in the new law or in um, New Testament times that would say, well, that no longer applies as far as that relationship. It just seems to be that uh, when God sees that relationship, um, it, it is that relationship no matter what. So any thoughts on that? Not that it makes any difference, but I just, there again, I don't want anybody to think that I was misspeaking. Well, David? I think you brought that up. The author in the book said it appeared that his father was deceased. And I don't see any indication of that in Christians 5. And I think that's what you were addressing. I don't think that's a necessary conclusion. Yeah, I don't think it has to be a necessary a necessary conclusion. Um, it would even be maybe even more egregious if he wasn't, right? In in, in our minds, anyway. Yeah, in in our minds, um, I think that in God's mind or in God's um, view, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. But it's still that same that same sin. Um, okay. Any no other comments on that? All right, so we didn't speak a whole lot about, but I do want to talk about um, the fact where it says to deliver such a one to Satan. Verse 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? How does that, how does that play into this? That, that Paul is asking or telling these Corinthians to do to this to this man. How do you deliver such a one to Satan? There's a view that I think is, and he kind of touches base on the book, and we're not going to go into it in great detail, but there's a view that some think that this is actually um, um, requiring the church to call down a curse on this person, even unto death, right, so that his... His physical body can be destroyed, but I'm not sure how that would then save his soul. So that doesn't really make any sense to me whatsoever. But how do you see this as delivering one to Satan? John? Well, a couple of thoughts come to mind. You know, again, in the, in the nation of Israel, uh, there, there were those inside the camp, and then there was, you know, those who were put outside the camp. Think of a leper, right. for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, there was that holiness within the camp and then outside the camp. And I think the same thing probably carries over here uh, in that the church, uh, as Micah mentioned, is the body of Christ. There is this belonging to God and to Christ. So the, the realm of God would be within the body and that which was outside would, would belong perhaps to the realm of Satan. Uh, okay. So if he's no longer a part of the body of Christ, then you could view him as being delivered to Satan. Okay. All right. David? 
Yeah, that's pretty much what I was going to say. I've always looked at this as uh, he belongs to Satan by the way he lives. Right. And so this, we need to publicly acknowledge he's living a life of sin. He belongs to Satan. And clearly the church was there in Corinth was still considering him to be a part of their number and they didn't seem <coughs> upset with him at all. Okay. Turn I on. thought of it like uh, Romans chapter 1, God giving them, giving people who are depraved over to their lust that, okay, well, I can't have any part with you now and, okay, you're just going to let this run its course. Um, when you're tired of it being that, then you'll return, but um, kind of like that. Okay. Just... Right. You know, wetting, lopping it off, letting that infection just take over whatever that, allowing it to just do whatever it's going to do. Okay. But Good. Good. No, I, th I think that I like that. Craig? Yeah, I mean, the, the question that people ask sometimes, what kind of a loving God would send somebody to hell? And it's, we've got the wrong idea of that. Right. We're taking ourselves there. Right. God's tried to turn us back, but we, of our own choice, are walking down that path. And so... I view this in, in a similar way. We're just, we're publicly making known the path they've chosen to take themselves down on. Yeah. And we're, uh, you know, the ESV, I love that passage in, well, I don't love it, but, the, you know, that passage in Romans 1, uh, the ESV says God gave them up to their lusts. Yeah. He, he let them have their way, <clears throat> and destruction is a result, but that wasn't, that wasn't God's doing, that was theirs. That was their choice, that's right, that's right. I really like this, and I think those comments are all great. I think they're perfect. I really, really like the visualization of the two camps, right? So you've got the camp of God and you've got the camp of Satan. And here you have someone that actually is in the camp of Satan, but trying to be in the camp of God at the same time. And you've got those in the camp of God that are, are, are professing that they want to be holy and righteous, but yet they're allowing someone from the camp of Satan to be in their midst. And so I think he's saying... You need to turn this person over. You need to, to, to send them to the camp where they are professing by their actions that they belong. And then he says, you do that for the destruction of the flesh. That has, all, you know, for years, that was like, how in the world? What is that? But, yeah, go ahead, John. Galatians 5.24. Uh, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Yep. Yeah. So... Kind of how this, the hope of how this works out is like with the prodigal son. Though the father's not letting him go as in like going and do, he's doing something sinful now, therefore he's letting him go. But try to follow the example of just that the whole point is that you allow them to just do, okay, so this is what you've chosen to do. You go do that and that's what it leads to. And one day you may wake up going, what am I doing here? Right. Well, look at all the choices I've made, and this is what it's led to. It was better where it was. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And this idea of destruction of the flesh, right? We're not talking about the destruction of the physical being. I think we're talking about the destruction of the fleshly desires that this person is doing. So you turn them over to Satan. You let them dwell in that camp that they've chosen, hope, hoping that they will, like you say, realize, what have I done and destroy those fleshly desires so that they can come back and be restored once again. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. David? The, the fact that this guy's still accepted in the congregation would tend to make him think, well, I must be all right. This must not be that bad. Right, right. That he may not even still be accepted by normal society, though, either, of non-believers. And so, like, the fact that Paul says... It's not even named among Gentiles. Like even Gentiles are just like this is not this is not something you do. Right. So he wouldn't even be accepted by other people. So if he's not accepted by them, and then if the church even makes a stand on that and says this isn't acceptable, where's he going to go? I mean, right. That that's the whole point, yeah. right? Right. Okay. Well, that's what you've chosen. Well, you know. It's not like you're just like, oh, well, now I, now I can be with all the friends that I wanted to be with. Because sometimes it works out that way where it's like, right. okay, well, I don't need you. I've got all these friends. But it's like, now you got nothing. That's right. Well, I think it's interesting then, immediately after this, then he starts talking about the idea of, of um, leaven and the Passover and the fact what leaven will do. And... Um, it just to me it just brings it back to this first part of chapter 5 yes he's talked about this man but he's really addressing the church and what they have done wrong right i mean that's his focus here and then next i think then you know once we get into verses 9 through then it's like okay this is what you need to do this is how you need to 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 address this with the man but you know he's he's letting them know that this man is like a cancer this man is like a bit of leaven that you know, one little bit of leavening in a in a in a pot of of dough, over time will just continue to grow, and it will cause that whole pot to rise. And you've got to purge that because if you don't, then there's a chance that this little bit of leaven that you are letting sit in the pot of this church could potentially just continue to grow and cause this this whole thing to explode to, to the point where the church isn't even recognizable by Christ. A law not prosecuted is no longer a law. Now, we have laws on the books that they don't they don't enforce. Okay, well, it's like yeah, spitting on the sidewalk. Right. Nobody's gonna lock you up for that or fine you for that because it's not enforced. Right. It's still a law, but but if it's not enforced, it no longer has its effect. And so to allow these kind of things to continue on, well, then what's to say that I can't do that? Right. So if he he's okay, so I I can do this, right? And then what else can I do? I mean, that's how the speed limit yeah. around here works on the interstate. <laughs> well, if they don't enforce it at fifty five, then why not sixty or seventy or eighty? You know, at what point do you do you go? Oh, well, that's too far. Well, what makes it too far now? Right. You've not enforced it all along, so uh, good. No. And th- that's just that's how this. It not just like for like but right it's always pushing to the next thing because if oh i didn't enforce that well that's not a big deal everybody's okay with that well right. then i can i can one up it right and right. and what i'm going to do isn't near as bad as this so if they're going to enforce that then i don't have anything to worry about too right i mean we yeah. can even get into that mindset yeah absolutely yeah mark yeah um this seemed to be something that became a matter of pride for this church absolutely where it's like, well, look how tolerant we are. We can accept this guy in our midst. Um, and we're saying, like, you need to get this guy out because he's going to kind of corrupt the entire group. Um, and, like, we need, we need to be just as careful. Like, if we let 
just a little bit of something in for, for tolerance, like a lot of people are preaching these days, uh, and let these things in, they're going to fester and grow and uh, cause us all to fall away. Right, right. Good. That's good. Okay, so let's spend a little bit of time and let's uh, take a look at verse 9, uh, 9 through 13. Verse 9 through 13. Uh, Craig, what version do you have? Uh, ESV. Yeah, would you read that for us, please? Um, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among them. Okay. So it's interesting when he says, I wrote to you in my epistle. So obviously we talked about this, that there appears to be another epistle, maybe even one before this one that they received that, uh, that, that we don't have a record of, right? Um, not to keep company with sexually immoral people, and I think that's what we always focus on because that's what this is about, right? This, this is about sexually immoral people, and that's what... But if you really look at what he lumps in with that same thing, right? If you go down to uh, verse, um, <coughs> verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother or anyone who calls himself a brother, literally is, who calls himself a brother, who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So, even though the specific sin that they were dealing with was a sexual immorality, a sin of sexual immorality, Paul says it doesn't stop there, right? And isn't it interesting that I think that we probably... Um, Craig, read verse 11 again for me. Just I'm going to hear the ESV's wording of some of those words because I've got the New King James, which are a little more archaic maybe. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Okay, greed. Did you get that Greed. Wow. When's the last time you uh, heard a sermon on the definition of greed in the Bible and what constitutes greed, right? Or how greed is a, is a terrible sin and if we have greed in our midst, we need to purge it. I think it's interesting that um, Paul lumps all of these things together in this. And I don't think it's an exhaustive list, even. I, but I think he's just bringing up the fact that there are there are things that are not Christ-like that if you allow them to dwell in your midst, if you allow them to fester, then they're going to be even a bigger problem than what they are when they first start. So he says, 
he's not talking about people of the world, right? Let's see, he's talking about, and keep in mind this class that we're, we're having here, we established the idea up front that the, the focus of this class is how the church disciplines. Now, there's principles, and we can talk about how we individually do it, but this is how the church disciplines. And so he is talking to this church, and he says, I'm not talking about people of the world, because if I was talking about people of the world, basically you would have to live in your house and never step outside your house because you, you, couldn't, you couldn't exist. But then, verse 11, we've heard it twice. And then he talks about, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away yourselves from the evil person. But there's also a phrase in there at the end of verse 11 that I think is, is almost, a, almost a banner that Christians want to hang out when it talks about do not even eat with such a person. And it seems like a lot of times from a discipline standpoint over the years, that has been one of the, one of the key things is like, you know, you're going to be disciplined, so I can't, I can't eat with you. I want to talk about that for a little bit. I'm not saying it's right or wrong as far as how we believe, but there are a couple different ways to look at this, and they both have, I think, valid arguments. And so I just want to get your thoughts from that standpoint. What does this mean? Number one, maybe what's the principle Paul is trying to, to get at? And number two, what do you feel is the literal understanding of this, this command? And is, is this a command for every person that is disciplined? Or is this a command for this specific type of discipline that is being taken? Because we talked about, you know, Matthew 18 and Galatians 6. There's, there's, we don't see this three-step process here. This is so bad and egregious, Paul is saying... You need, to, you need to purge this immediately. You need to get this taken care of. So, how do you see this concept of, of not eating with? Is it all eating? Is it specific to something else? Like I said, I'm going to tell you right now, I am not going to tell you what the right way is. What's right <clears throat> I have, over the years, I've kind of gone back and forth a little bit on how I, how I view this. I'm just curious. I think it, it's worthwhile having a discussion about that. Micah? My mind goes back to 2 Thessalonians 3 and the importance that there is a marked change in the relationship. Okay. Um, that uh, whenever you admonish one as a brother that... That you're st- that in that instance you're still having interactions. Okay. Um, yet you yet those interactions have admonition it, uh, ingrained into them as well. In other instances, any kind of association, um, I think that's what Craig's translation uses, uh, keep company or associate with someone. Having that interaction lets that person feel as though that they are okay because what they are wanting is fellowship okay. and so sometimes that change in relationship requires a removal or a lessening of the interactions okay okay <clears throat> well said john it looks like this uh this uh original greek language for the word eat 
uh, occurs five times in the New Testament. And um, uh, it was, it was uh, accused, Jesus was accused of receiving sinners and eating with them. Uh, in Acts 10, it talks about uh, Jesus uh, ate and drank with, the, with uh, some after his resurrection. Um, Acts 11, the, uh, after Cornelius, uh, men were accused, uh, Jewish men were accused of eating with Gentiles. And, um, of course, this 1 Corinthians 5, and then Galatians 2, where James uh, used to eat with the Gentiles. Um, and so, that's just, to me, that's, that's helpful to see how else that is used. Okay. All right. Good. Any other thoughts or comments? I feel like the heart, the heart behind this instruction is we want to make sure that we do not give the impression either to the individual or those who may observe us with the individual that we are still in agreement with them. Um, we don't want that person to feel comfortable in their current state because they're in a dangerous state. Um, not to say that we, we push them away, we make them feel um, like they can never approach us, um, but we don't want them to feel at ease. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if someone were to observe me sitting down and having a meal with this person, conversing and laughing and, you know, just like I did before their sin was made known, they see no difference, um, is that sending the wrong message, uh, both to that individual and to those who may observe. Okay. Ann? Okay, I have a question about, um, probably nobody has an answer, <laughs> but the not, not to associate with is the same phrase used here in 1 Corinthians 5 as is used in 2 Thessalonians 3, and 14, but we've spent a lot of time talking about how those are different situations, but it's the same phrasing, do not associate with this person. Mm -hmm. And then when it says, in back to 1 Corinthians 5, when it says not to associate with any so-called brother who behaves in these abominable ways, not even to eat with such one, it's the not even part that makes me think, was that like not associating is a deeper term and so eating with someone would be the bare minimum of that association so I'm saying don't even take step one which would be to eat with them I don't know okay. I'm asking I'm not saying okay. I'm really trying to understand what that okay. means okay. John? In the book I think he threw out the the potential that maybe this is referring to the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. I struggle with that because to me that seems like well that's not a possibility because you're going to be he's going to be outside your number, uh, and so how how could he expect to be eating the Lord's Supper with you uh, if he's not going to be a part of your uh, if he's been removed. 
So that I struggle, I'm strugg I struggle with that uh, conclusion from that perspective. I um, I probably don't struggle with it as much as you might. Um, there again, I'm not I'm not going to say which way I lean currently, um, but one of the arguments is that. We can withdraw from someone, but that doesn't prohibit them from walking in the door and sitting down at a Sunday worship service and partaking of the Lord's Supper, right? And so this, the, the, the thought process is they could be refused to be served. There again, I'm just saying different things, different thoughts from different people. Um, there's also the, um, the subject that is brought up that James brings up that in... It's the only reference we have to it in the New Testament, but James talks about the love feasts and talks about the church participating in their love feasts. And so um, I'm going to just read a, uh, this is Gordon Fee. Um, he's, there again, he's a commentator. He's a man. He's, I'm not saying he's neither right nor wrong, um, but this is the other side of it because I, I knew coming into this that the, the, the vast majority of us would probably think that it's talking more about just a regular meal. But I just wanted you to, to, to read, I want to read this just so that you can, you can hear the other side or the other thought process of does it mean that or is it more about the Lord's Supper and or these love feasts. And this commentator says, the intent of the final prohibition with such a man do not even eat, is not certain. At the very least, it means that the incestuous man is to be excluded from Christian fellowship meals, including the Lord's table. As in Jude 12, such a person would be a blemish on their love feasts. Did I say Jude or James before? You said James. Sorry, I meant Jude. I thought after I read that, I thought, I think I said James. As in Jude 12, such a person would be a blemish on their love feast. The question is whether eating meals in more private circumstances is also in view. It is arguable that limiting it to the Lord's table would make the not even unnecessary. That is, one may assume that he would not partake of the table. They are not even to carry on ordinary social intercourse with him. However, Paul's concern throughout does not seem to be that the church as individual members disassociate from the incestuous man, but that he be excluded from the community as it gathers for worship and instruction. The point cannot be finally resolved, although the similar text about disassociation in 2 Thessalonians 3.15 implies that private fellowship may not have been included in the ban. So, it's interesting. We brought up 2 Thessalonians, and we thought that that helped us, or to some of us maybe that means it seems to be, it would probably be more private. And here this commentator says 2 Thessalonians, in his mind, makes it, Probably less so. So, because of the idea of this idea of admonishing. Yes? Um, I, I think there's a parallel concept. It's definitely a different situation. But in Second John, uh, in verse 9, in dealing with false teachers, right. they were told, uh, uh, sorry, Second John in verse 10, uh, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Uh, there seems to be, in, in that context, this impression that they are in some way supporting them, in some way in fellowship with them. That, that might be a similar concept to what we're seeing here, okay. obviously a different situation. Right, right. Nope, I think that's a good point. Good point. So, I'm going to throw a what if at you, okay? Because this was, this was thrown at me. 
I'm just curious to see what you think. Um, someone asked me, which even though it's a, it's a hypothetical, it, I could see it happening. Someone has fallen away, someone has reached out to this person, and they said, I'm willing to meet you, but I, I only, the only time I have is on my lunch hour. I'll meet you at lunch, and we can talk about this. So, what do we do at that point? Do we say, I'm sorry, I can't eat with you. I can't study with you. I can't, I can't try to, because I can't eat with you. Or is this more of a, like Craig was talking about, more of a, um, a ban on the prohibition of letting this person believe that he is in okay standing with you and that you are willing to just accept him as he is and, and not do anything about it. I'm just asking. I don't know. This was asked to me, and I was like, I'm going to bring this up in class. Dave? I might be tempted not to be hungry then. Yeah. Yeah. And you might be yeah. talking enough that you'd be hard to eat. Right. So. <laughs> exactly. So are we splitting hairs? He's sitting there eating lunch. You're sitting there not eating lunch. Are we splitting hairs? Well, I'm, I'm sitting there trying to restore him, trying to get him to see his need to okay. come back. Okay. It is his lunch. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean it's yours. Right. Um, I thought the same thing, especially if it's your conscience that bothers you. Yeah. The whole purpose is to restore him, and he's agreed to meet with you. The meeting is what needs to take place. What is going on outside of that is... I mean, if it doesn't bother your conscience and you figure you are doing what you think, you've got Bibles open, he's eating, and you guys are having this good discussion, I guess my conscience wouldn't necessarily be bothered because restoration is the motivation. Maybe. Right. Okay. Um, if, but if my my conscience was bothered, and, and that probably may depend on how it's going. Right. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. order and decide I don't want to eat because right. it's not go in, it's not, we're not getting down to the nitty gritty, we're yeah. looking at things in a vague way, and, and this is just somebody wanting to feel like they're feel, do, doing okay, then I might do a take home with it. <laughs> okay, okay. There again, I'm not going to say what's right or wrong, I'm just, I, this is a good discussion, I think this is good for us to think about. John? It was common in the Bible times and still not even uncommon today that if you're going to uh, uh, make an agreement, enter into a contract with someone, that eating a meal can a lot of times be a part of that uh, ratification process, you know, to solidify the agreement. And we, we see it in the Old Testament repeatedly. Uh, you kind of see that the connection then to partaking of the Lord's Supper, to me, it even carries over then into this discussion, whatever the application is, to, to be sharing a meal shows that, that oneness and that uh, alignment, that agreement. And the last thing I think you want to do is convey to the person that you're okay. We're, we're okay together. And, and I think Craig brought that up. Well, earlier, but just another way maybe of thinking about that. Okay. And? Even if there's not a contract involved in every society, I think since humanity 
the yahan eating together is a fellow is a symbol of fellowship it's you know it's hospitality it's sharing even if you're eating together at a restaurant you're both paying for your own food it's a social it's a social sign of fellowship every society eats together as a sign of fellowship always has okay it might also be worth fasting over mm-hmm. if it's that serious. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I have a problem if you ate at the time, if you ate with that person, if you're talking about those things. Mm-hmm. Um, again, yeah, if your conscience bothers you, but, you know, it's serious enough. Food can wait. Doesn't mean you can't meet over that same time period. Right. But oh, yeah. Just because it's yeah. your lunch break doesn't mean you have to eat. Right. I mean, there's yep. plenty of people that don't do that. So. Yeah. Yeah. The other argument for it mean, meaning something other than just a common meal is that why would he select a common meal out of, and it kind of goes to what Am was talking about, when he has already said, do not keep company with. And the idea of keeping company would mean this idea of the social interaction. So if you're not keeping company, if you're not having the social interaction with someone, why then would he even just say don't even eat with? Because that would be part of the keeping company. There again, I'm just saying this is another argument to point it toward the idea of the Lord's Supper or these love feasts or these these meals that the church... And keep in mind, I, I think I do think one point that I think that Fee brings up that is is pretty valid is that Paul is addressing the church here as a whole, as, as, as a collective, right? And there again, I'm not saying that there aren't principles that personally that we can do, but is this, have we always looked at this as this is strictly one-on-one personal when in reality this is a collective or a, a, um, a letter to the collective for the collective to take and how the collective is to treat this man? I'm just asking. I don't know. Do you think, though, not saying that these discussions are bad, right? But do you think sometimes we miss the the underlying principle because we're too stuck in the weeds of the well? <clears throat> I can eat three crackers with him, and that's okay because that's not a full meal. But I can't have a cup of soup with that, you know? Like right, right. It's almost yeah. the that's almost the kind of things that some people would like to yeah. whittle on right. to justify bad behavior. Or not doing what they're supposed to be doing, or you know, we just we get stuck in that as opposed to what's the whole point? And it's again what Craig had said. That when you look at what he's trying to do here is like you're just trying to show that this person that things aren't okay between us, and the best way to go about doing that here's here's the best way to go about doing that is you know removing them from you, not associating with them, not eating with them, not acting like everything's okay. And when we want to deal with those minutiae of like, well, this particular scenario, uh, you know, what I can get away with, like, okay, you've totally missed the point. Right. And so it's understanding the concept behind it gives us direction on and how to answer that particular situation, however that presents it to us. Right. Like, you'll be looking for, well, the, the, the overriding principle is this, and this is maybe the best way to handle it this time. Right. But when we, oh, no, no, I can't do that because because this. Right. As yeah. Opposed I, yeah. To that, that yeah. Greater I, thing. Yeah. 
I think, I think we can err on both sides of that argument, right? Is that, no, I can't do this because of this, or no, I, you know, I have to do this because of this. And, and there again, I think that we can take it, you know, maybe to the extreme on both sides of it and, and, and have the same and problem. totally miss Totally miss it, right, yeah. right. It goes back, in, in my opinion, all of this, and I keep harping on this, and the book does too, but it's, it goes back to this idea of the fellowship that we have with each other how we know each other, how we love each other, that if that is the way that God has intended it to be, then when something like this takes place and discipline is enacted on that person, they will have a sense of loss. That is the whole They will have a sense of loss that they cannot find anywhere else and it may take them a while, but the point is, hopefully they will come to their senses and realize, like the prodigal son, I had it so good, I need to get back to where I know I should be. This whole point of restoration, right? That's the point of restoration. That's the goal. Um, and there again, you know, yes, we can, get, we can get down in the weeds. We're talking about some of these weedy things. We can get down in the weeds a little bit, but we, we, we need to keep in mind that we have to have the relationship with each other first to know each other to the point where if there ever comes a situation like this, that what we do isn't just going to come across as a form of punishment, right? Because that's not what discipline is about. God disciplines us to help straighten us up to help bring us right back on the same track. His, his goal isn't punishment. His goal is restoration. So when we discipline the way God wants us to discipline each other, our goal has to be restoration and, and, not, and not punishment. There again, I'm not talking about this particular verse here at all. I'm just saying in general. And I think any time we look at any of these scriptures, we have to keep that in mind. Craig, you had your hand up. You were going to be commenting. No, I changed my mind. Okay. <laughs> John? That not even. Uh, I just was looking this up. In, in Mark 2.2, 2, Jesus is going to heal the paralytic. And it was commented that uh, so many were gathered together that there was no longer room, not even near the door. So what do you mean there wasn't room? Well, there wasn't even room near the door. And then in Mark 3.20... The, the Jesus came back home and the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean that they, they gathered again? Well, to what extent? To the extent that he didn't... So it seems to be uh, descriptive of the situation at hand, that not even. Okay. Okay. <coughs> okay. So, one last question I want to bring up. Forget this eating. We're done with that. One last question I want to bring up, and I, I touched base on it a little bit, but what about, or when was the last time, and I think I, I said this in passing, but I want us to think about this. When was the last time um, someone was withdrawn from, or marked, or public discipline was enacted, um, for the cause of greed or idolatry or maybe drunkenness, maybe maybe we've seen that. 
or what's um, extortioner? What did yours say there at the very end, Craig? Uh, swindler. 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 A swindler. Gotta watch out. Gotta watch out for those swindlers. That's right. Yeah. I think it is, especially in just when when you look at that list. That list is repeated almost exactly in the next chapter. It is when he says, "And such were some of you." Right. You know, so this is definitely not coming from a place of pride. Right. Uh, we recognize that's where we all were um, for the Lord. Right. No. No. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really that's really the point here. Is he's saying anyone who has come out of that, whatever their life used to be, whatever their sinful life used to be, anyone who has chosen to willfully go back, or even to try a new type of, you know, anyone who is willing to backslide. To digress, to um, to look the blessing of God's grace and forgiveness, look at it and say, "No, no, I prefer the pigsty." Um, there is a there is a spirit of rebellion in there. There's a spirit of of ungodliness that that needs to be addressed. Absolutely, it's, it's going to take a variety of forms. Absolutely. If you remember back to the very beginning of the class in the introduction, we were talking about um, what his focus was for this book, and that was um, based in Hebrews, right? Holiness. Holiness. I think Paul is addressing that here. Now here you have a church of God, got the body of Christ that they are making unholy by accepting this this person in this sin to the point where like I said they were even bragging about it or boasting the fact that look how look how wonderful, forgiving, caring, loving, righteous we are because we won't condemn anyone. And by doing that, we just throw holiness out the door. And so I think ultimately, you know, we we, we have to keep that in mind that God wants us, he wants his church to be holy as he is holy and we can't be holy, his church can't be holy if we allow sin to reside in the camp. And discipline is designed to try to remove sin from the camp especially in this situation and by removing it from the camp we're hoping that the person misses camp and wants to come back and restoration then is made. And we did not get to chapter 11. We'll have to do that Sunday. Now we have two chapters in two class periods, so we're going to go through chapter 11 Sunday, chapter 12 on Wednesday. Any any other comments? We've got about another minute. Yeah, Karen. You were referencing Hebrews 12, uh-huh. and I find a lot of comfort in the verse after that that we may share in His holiness. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful, rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are being trained by it. Um, that, that helps clarify, you know, right. it's not just for punishment, but it is painful, and it is, right. it is punishment, it is hard. Right. Um, but what is the purpose purpose of that discipline Yeah. Um, if we're willing to be trained by it? Yeah. 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 Yeah, we don't we never want to say discipline does not include punishment, but that is never the goal of, dis- of discipline, right? right? The goal is this idea of restoration and holiness, just as God disciplines us. Thank you so much for your comments. Really appreciate it. And we will um, pick up the next chapter on Sunday.